Audi. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Lisa Francescanand and welcome to episode 94 of the Big Travel Podcast. And we're still riding high in the Apple Podcasts places and travel charts all around the world, really. We've had several days at number one in the UK and as high as number 16 in the US. So I really want to thank you once again, all our loyal listeners, all new listeners. Welcome. I really hope you enjoy our guests. There are over 90 of them to trawl your way through. So, you know, have a go and see what you think. Um, my guest today is someone I've always wanted to get on the podcast because her books, they're best-selling novels all over the world. They're so travelly. In fact, I can actually see one of them now from where I'm sitting, a book on my bookshelf called The Return, which is based in one of my favourite cities, Granada in Spain, and it's just sitting there. Yeah, so I'm a genuine fan. And the interview was actually my last trip into the centre of London before lockdown just three weeks ago. I went to the very bookish and stunning old building of, of the London Library. It's in the beautiful St James's Square in Westminster to meet my guest. And it's where she does a lot of research for her novels, because they are very accurately and painstakingly researched. It's strange to think that London is all out there, just a short tube ride away, and I can actually see it from my window here um, because I've got a great view across the city um, from here in Greenwich. But it's so strange to think that it's all out there, but uh, but very quiet. And this was only recorded three weeks ago. Anyway, let's give this best-selling author the full big travel podcast treatment. With her best-selling and impeccably researched historical novels, Victoria Hislop has the power to transport you through both place and time, and her books have sold millions around the world and been translated into over 35 languages. A former travel writer, she divides her time between Athens, Crete and England, and the inspiration for her stories comes from anything from a leprosy colony in the Greek islands to Garthia Lorca's family home in Granada. I've been a fan of her work for a long time, so I'm delighted to have Victoria Hislop on the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Victoria Hislop, and I'm a novelist principally, but my writing is all based on other countries, and I'm mostly known for writing about Greece. And in every single Smith's, in every airport, you have great prominence. I've read, I think, all, all but one of your books, uh, and not the most recent one. But yes, you said a lot of Greece. It sounds like a charmed life, really, that a lot of us would like to live, going off and researching <laughs> books in exotic locations and writing. Does it feel like that? Yes, it does feel like a charmed life. I can't, can't deny it. And also slightly accidental. I didn't set out to find this ideal combination of kind of life and work and 
being in sunny places. Um, How did it happen then? Well, it happened because I was a travel journalist for a number of years, um, lots of other freelance writing as well, but travel journalism was a, a kind of big part of my work. And I, was, I wasn't actually sent to Crete for this particular trip. It was a family holiday, but my mind, even on family holidays, usually was thinking, oh, I wonder if there's something here that I can turn into a travel piece. Um, because it's enjoyable writing travel pieces. So if I went on holiday, saw something interesting, I'd usually come home and pitch it as an idea. And on this particular holiday, we went... Uh, one day to a little island that had been a leprosy hospital um, from 1903 till 1957. Um, And I suppose I didn't go there with the intention of writing anything at all, but as soon as I got there, I thought this is a completely unique place. I'd never heard of it, so I was, you know, confident that nobody else had written anything about it, even in the travel papers. But at the same time, it was almost like a very next thought. A moment later, I thought, actually, this isn't travel journalism. This is a story which comes from my imagination. And that was the same day, you know, all on the same day. I sort of mapped out in my head the idea for my first novel. That's The Island? Yes, that's The Island. A wonderful book. I remember reading it on holiday. And you, but you actually sat there and just mapped it out in one go. Well, I had the idea. I mean, the, the island Spinalonga, it's it's called, is tiny, and it takes an hour to walk around it. Literally, from where the boat drops you off, you do a sort of circuit, and you arrive back in time to get the boat back to the mainland part of Crete. Literally, an hour later. So it's very very small. But as we were waiting for the boat, the central conflict of that book came to me in a very immediate I mean it was like oh thanks very much for the idea wherever that came from but the, the, the core part of that story is that the one of the patients falls in love with the doctor who is going to cure her so it's a, a dilemma for her obviously she wants to be cured but she doesn't she realises that actually she's reluctant to leave this place that's been like effectively a prison for her um, because she loves this man and she thinks she'll never see him again. And I hadn't studied... I mean, I'd studied literature, but I'd never really thought about the basic ingredient that you need for a good book, which is some kind of conflict or jeopardy or threat something that might stop you doing the thing that you want or need to do. And to me, that was just a very kind of gritty problem for this woman. And, of course, she's called Maria, because every woman in Crete is called Maria. Um, And from that point on, I started writing it. But the, the, the main... Two main characters sort of delivered themselves fully formed within the first hour of going there. That's incredible. You know, I'm not a believer in ghosts and spirits and so on, not really, but I definitely think that people leave something behind when they die. It's 
it's almost dust. It, it isn't a physical thing, but it's a little bit like it's in the air. You, you, when we go, we don't vanish. We don't, in every sense, disappear. We leave behind something. And definitely what I felt on Spin Alonga that day was a sense of an untold story. Um, because the place had been... You know, people went there to look around as tourists. You know, it's a Venetian castle and it was important during the Ottoman period and all these other periods of history have left their traces. But it was that human story of the 20th century that hadn't really been, I don't think, widely enough delivered to people. And conceivably, it is something that might have actually happened. You know, maybe you were getting yeah. a sense of a, actually yes, a person. You know, maybe Maria you know, is this person. But if I if was it, if a different not. person, I'd probably come up with some theory that I was channeling. You know, I always felt. You know, I, I hate using words like that because they they do make you sound a little bit like your feet aren't on the ground. But someone else might say that I channeled. Something. I, th- I certainly think I channeled some kind of energy was that was left energy. behind there. You know, I didn't see the phantoms of the, the leprosy patients sort of wandering about, but to me, atmosphere, that's what atmosphere is. It's what other people have left behind. And you do get a, very much a sense of it when you visit places where there's been great horror and sadness. Like of that. course. I mean, the extremes, obviously, is somewhere you know, like Auschwitz. Um, how could anyone say those are just buildings? You know, it's, that is the extreme example. But I think there are many other examples with less you know, grief and weight, but nevertheless stories that are still somehow there in the bricks and the mortar. Your second (coughs) book was The Return, which is based in Spain in the Civil War. And again, a very, you know, a huge time of change and emotion for the Spanish people, for a lot of people that felt very strongly about it and went to fight and report and even write poetry on the war. It was a very... Um, you know, emotive thing as well as political for a lot of people. Where did the idea for that come from? Well, that again came from a very specific moment in a very specific place and that was just outside Granada and literally within walking distance of the city centre there is the summer house of Lorca Um, and I you know, I've been to see Lorca's plays. They're pretty popular um, here in the UK. And it was something to do. You know, if there's... We're all... Probably everyone listening to this podcast, somebody who likes to... You know, wherever you visit, wherever you travel to, you you want to see everything that there is to mm-hmm. see. So I always sort of began at the beginning of a guidebook and worked my way through... So there was Lorca's summer house, and in fact we were shown around by a woman who had known the family. So she, she was, it was a very personal story to her. I think she was the daughter, perhaps, of the housekeeper, something like that. So she really lived and breathed. Basically not just the story of Lorca's family, who were quite wealthy, um, but of the fact that Lorca had been arrested and executed and his body 
you know, at that point at that when point, I went, yes, people yeah. didn't know where his, it was sort of um, in an unmarked grave somewhere. And that, the house itself, um, again, it made my hair stand on end a little bit because I thought this is, this is a story of really extraordinary injustice and why didn't I know about it? Why, when I've been to a Lorca play, wasn't that the well, central thing in, in the in the you know in the program? But you know, people's work sometimes it stands aside from their actual life story. So I went back into the city centre and I thought, well, given that Lorca is the most famous, probably you know, if you asked anybody in the street, they'd probably say Cervantes and Lorca. You know, given that Lorca is really quite well known, there must be a monument, something about this, basically, assassination, um, you know, that, to commemorate him. But there isn't. So that got me, really. I thought, well, and there was a monument to one of the, the right-wing uh, leaders of the Civil War. I thought, that's really strange. I thought, surely now in this 21st century where we're looking at both sides of a story, but still then in the south of Spain, you know, there was no real kind of acknowledgement of what had happened in, in the Civil War. It's very strange the way the Spanish have dealt with the Civil War, and it's only now in the ten, last 10 years they have actually started, maybe 10 or 15 yeah, years, they've actually no, started acknowledging some of it. Absolutely, because of course, it, Franco, one of the parts of research for that book was going to the Valley of the Fallen. I've never been. It, it is really, talk about hair-raising. I mean, now his body has, Franco's body has been exhumed, but when I went there, it was ten years ago, it was just when people were really beginning to kind of start questioning and, in a sense, digging up the bodies, it was a shrine, very definitely, to General Franco. And there were roses all over his you know the slab in the cathedral under which he lay and there was a definite sense that most people who went there were going there to pay homage to this fascist and you know again all those things kind of fueled the writing of that book you know that it's a very i suppose because franco won you know from that moment from 19 39, right till his death in 1975, if you hadn't been on his side, you'd been on the wrong side. So, you know, one imagines how divided society must have been by that. I grew up in Andalusia, so Did this you? is a subject close oh to my, my heart. Oh, wow. went to English school there, but we, it's very extraordinary how growing up we didn't even talk about the Civil War. It wasn't spoken about. And the only thing I can think of is it's because it was neighbours. It was people side by side that are still, even yeah. now, living side by side, and they didn't want to bring it up. But this meant, as you said, not just Lorca, but hundreds of thousands even of dead bodies lying in unmarked graves and people not knowing where their loved ones are and not even dare, daring to speak out of it. Mm. And I think it's been incredible following that that journey of the families, you know, that now say, no, actually, we want to know, we want to know what happened to our 
Yes, you know, yeah. Put... Which is all a good thing, but it has taken some time to do <laughs> so that. It's been very strange. Yeah. And they, there was this. Uh, my dissertation in my BA was about the Spanish. Spanish design through popular culture. I don't know, it was something you know, pretentious mm. like that. But my, my main research was going to Spanish festivals, which was great, because it was all about Spanish, I can't remember it now, but it was all about Spanish culture and how that reflected on society and Spanish personality and, you know, it was all that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, really interesting. It was, it was really interesting. Yeah, very yes. relevant at the time. That was in the, um, in about 1998 or something. Because very often, let's say the younger generations who hadn't lived through it inadvertently would be everyday life would be so affected by it that they've got this shadow but they don't know what the thing is casting yes. the shadow so presumably at every level culture was affected by it it just it, it just seems extraordinary and you know up until 1975 when franco died which apparently the, everyone was in mourning but the shop sold out, sold out of champagne i always yeah, remember people I, talking about a that. nice detail how um, people really felt exactly how they really felt but even yeah. the draconian laws about more than three people standing in the street having a conversation was a potential uprising you know people weren't allowed to wear swimwear that the whole all the yeah. very draconian laws that still still were, they were you know in, in place up until mm. he died mm. it's a fascinating culture like that i was in spain watching on the television in a local tapas bar when they exhumed franco's body oh, really uh, yeah but i was just watching it on the tv because i was in in malaga but it was incredible it was only uh, six months ago yeah. I think. um it was incredible watching the reaction of people around me in the spanish in the tapas bar and i said to the waiter Alex is a friend of mine. I said, Are you, you know, is that Franco's body? And, you know, I was practically choking back the tears for whatever reason. Not yeah, because it is quite an emotional, emotional. It's an enormous event. Side. And people weren't really watching it. It was very strange. They were. I was gripped to the screen, absolutely gripped. And they weren't watching it at all. That really surprises me. Yeah, me too. I was very yeah. surprised. And he, I yeah. said something to the, to the waiter and he was like, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's just Franco. And it's mm. like, okay. Wow. Yeah, this is a big deal. They're taking yes. down, they're not taking down the monument as far as I know, but they are physically removing his body from where it has been lauded in this, yeah. by all accounts, very ominous and grand yes, looking place. it is. Absolutely. And taking him to an unmarked grave and all this family around him, grandchildren, you know, still there mm. around the body. It was just shocking to see. Because they can't think about the um, mausoleum is that it's built into the mountain. So it's kind of impossible to remove it. They can't literally demolish it in a sense. It's I'd, a huge I'd really like space. And, uh, but you yeah. feel a bit conflicted about going. Yeah. Because like we'll go, you said, people yeah. seem to go to pay homage to him. Or but now, I imagine the opposite. But I remember buying, I've got some little souvenirs that I bought in the souvenir shop. And they were very definitely not, wasn't Franco a bad thing. It's a, here's your souvenir of the Valley of the Fallen. I'm trying to imagine what they could be. My, my kids yeah. are very small and we collect magnets wherever we go. Could we get oh, a magnet? definitely would have had a fridge magnet. <laughs> a fridge magnet. Absolutely. No, I had little kind of dishes Going. and yeah, all this sort of slightly kitsch stuff. But it was most definitely homage 
to Franco. I've met, talking of Malaga and my children, I've met you before actually. We took a flight together back from Malaga. Well, we didn't take, we were on the same flight yeah. about two years ago. And on the same flight was you and your husband, Ian, yes. well known um, for work on Private Eye and much more. And um, also Martin Lewis, the money saving expert. So I was sitting with Martin oh. Lewis in front of me and you and Ian behind me. It was the weirdest <laughs> flight ever. And I had my children, and my children were maybe three and five at the time. And I was thinking, please behave, please behave. And they were, they were very well. That was actually. Last year, yeah, maybe it was last year. Was I go so often. I don't know. Because there was a weeks of really slate grey skies, and then one day I just looked in the newspaper and saw European temperatures, and in three days' time it was going to be seventy degrees in Malaga, and it was the most spontaneous bit of travel I ever did. And we literally got on the plane, found a hotel that was on the seafront and we spent a couple of days on the beach and it was February. Oh, I absolutely and then love wandered that. Into, yes, I think it was. And then wandered into Malaga, which I love. It's the most beautiful city. It's so and lovely. so many people never discover the city centre, do they? They just fly to Malaga to go, go turn elsewhere. right and go along the coast. Yeah, no, it's, but, I think it's getting mm, more of a reputation. It was, it was the European capital of culture. You've got the Pompidou Centre there now. You've got lots of, you know, they're making a bit more of the Picasso yeah, um, connection. And but when I when I was a child growing up in in Malaga down the coast in Fungarola, Malaga City was a no go area. It felt like that. It was full of graffiti yeah. and um, there was a huge heroin problem actually, which I think was the, the heroin issue it was, was a, coming in. I don't know where. It was, yeah, quite possibly, but it was a big. It was. Uh, we read quite a lot about it. It was a big aftermath of the of the Franco, the Franco generation. Really? Basically, the kids of the Civil War. There was a, Gosh, a big problem with really? heroin. Yeah, oh. I don't know what it's like now. I mean, I don't see see that much. I haven't investigated into it, but. No, but it seems very full of tourists and lovely tapas yes. bars. Yes, yeah, I was there interviewing Bill Bailey last week. Beautiful shops and it's gorgeous and wonderful museums, yes. cathedral. No, I mean, it's the perfect but weekend. But Granada is just amazing, just, isn't Yes, it? Granada, Granada is and Sevilla just phenomenal. Uh, yeah. around the world and they're some of my favourite cities in the world, mm. so I can't, can't no. choose many more. And, of course, the flamenco. I mean, that story, the return kind of wove itself because one of the things that Franco hated was the gypsy culture which encapsulated that flamenco thing and I thought well here's a woman who's never going to stop dancing flamenco so ergo she is a subversive character you know and that meant that she was more interesting to me because she was politically almost defined by the fact that she can't stop dancing. And in times of great political strife, I mean, maybe we're going through one at the moment. I don't know. We seem to Brexit seems to have been replaced by the coronavirus. Oh, immediately, <laughs> there wasn't a gap. There was there? a gap. No, I mean, we're I'm still almost, almost nostalgic yeah, I was just about. About to say exactly that word. Yeah. I'm almost oh. nostalgic about the yeah, days of our days. On Twitter, with people about Brexit, they were just cowering in our houses and possibly unable to travel. We don't know at this point. Um, but it does, it, it does strike me as, as the connection between art and culture and music and things like flamenco and dance and that expression is, um, you know, the connection between tough political times is actually quite tangible. But obviously, they, you know, that was repressed at, mm. underneath Franco during the Civil War. Yeah, and Mercedes, the main character, 
you know, dancing becomes a or flamenco specifically becomes in a way her physical salvation because eventually she's earning money because she can dance um, as well as you know saving her spiritually mental salvation as well yeah uh, so tell us about the new book you've got a new book out the new book well i've gone from one civil war the spanish civil war to the greek civil war which is even less well known because of course one of the reasons that many other European countries knew about the Spanish Civil War was because we had members of the international brigades coming from, you know, all over the world to help um, the Spanish Republican cause. But the Greek Civil War happened very much within Greece. It didn't have any sort of... We didn't go and help the communists, let's say. Um, So when was the Greek Civil War? So, well, the Greek Civil War began almost immediately that the German occupation ended in 1944. And there was a sort of break. The main three years was from 1946 to 49. They sort of averted it. It broke out. Then there was a sort of peace agreement signed in 1945 between the communists and the government. And then the terms of the agreement weren't kept to. So 46 to 49... That was when all the hell of the Civil War broke loose. Um, it was a bad time for Europe altogether, wasn't it? It was a vicious, absolutely vicious period in Greece, created huge division in the country, a division which took a very long time to heal, uh, not unlike the Spanish Civil War in that way, although I I can never help comparing them because it's sort of obvious to compare two civil wars in two very close, you know, almost neighbours. In Greece, however, in Spain, there was a period of relative stability after the civil war. Franco won. He kept Spain out of the Second World War, pretty much. So that allowed them a stability that the rest of the Europe of Europe didn't have. You know, Greece was already on its knees after the occupation. Germany shipped all the resources out of Greece to feed the Germans and to feed their own troops. There was a famine, there was a blockade from the Allies because we in order to try and stop supplies getting in for the German troops, what are you doing? You're also stopping supplies getting in to the local people. So the period 1941 to 42 was when hundreds of thousands of Greeks died of starvation, not being shot by Nazis, pure and simple starvation. That's horrific. So when the Germans eventually left... The country was kind of on its knees, not kind of, it was. You know, the Germans destroyed roads and railways and bridges on their way out. But what had happened during the period of the occupation was that there was a big resistance movement and a huge number of people in the resistance were communists. Others were not communists, but many were. So at the end of the occupation, the communist resistance fighters, who'd been largely 
hiding up in the mountains by then, came down into Athens and expected a part in the next chapter, i.e. government of the new country at peace. But that wasn't to be. I mean, there was British involvement in that. Mm-hmm. We didn't suddenly want Greece to become a communist country. Yeah. <laughs> so the British sent troops and fought the communists. The communists were kind of left the city, but the whole situation simmered because they weren't going to give up that easily. You know, they really felt they wanted, they had a part to play. You know, they'd played a part in getting rid of the Germans. Now they wanted a part in the, in the government. So the civil war, which is, it's not the whole of the book. When I actually count the number of pages of that book, I think there are well over about 450 pages in Those Who Are Loved. And only about 50 of those are actually when the civil war itself is being fought. Because I counted them the other day and I thought... That's extraordinary. At the heart of this book is a civil war, and yet most of the story is about how that civil war could possibly have happened and then the consequences of that civil war for decades afterwards and very different consequences than were felt in Spain because they're... There was no political stability. Mm-hmm. I mean, some might say there still isn't in Greece, but Gosh, no. it's a, a great deal more stable than it than it was. Yes, but it's not. For, it's not verging on war. I mean, things no, are absolutely. Politics has moment. always been a little bit corrupt, and they're they're on you know in quite a good, you know, on a quite a clear path, you know, for really substantially better than they have been for I went a long to Athens and, um, not so long ago on a, uh, on a press trip and we, they made a great deal about introducing us to the tourism minister, very oh, glamorous yes. lady, really glamorous lady. Yeah. And, um, and then was I was she the one, that, the very tall one, had been a model? Yes, she'd yes. been a model, yes. Yeah, she was the... Yeah, they always have a very, very glamorous tourism minister. Yeah, it's a good job, travel and tourism. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most important parts of the Greek economy. Again, everything was becoming more stable, economic growth, lots of foreign investment, particularly Chinese, and there was this, well, there still is this golden visa opportunity for the Chinese that if they buy... A property in Greece over, I think it's over a hundred thousand. Then they're given a golden visa, which allows them to travel in Europe. Which is not actually a lot of money, but, is it, to buy property? Well, not if you're a wealthy yes, yeah. Chinese person, no. But anyway, all of that now is presumably yeah. everything's a little bit up mm. in the air. You strike me as a person. I mean, just this is obvious, an obvious link, but I'm guessing that travel is quite important to you. Very important. I mean, I always regard myself as very lucky, um, you know, particularly given what's happened in Greece in the last sort of decade, that I can come and go. You know, the coming and the going has always kept my perspective on Greece, which I think is what allows me to write about it. If I actually lived there full-time, I think I'd get too caught up in the the day-to-day difficulties and I think you can kind of fall out of love with a place if you live there all the time but yes traveling you know we all are slightly conflicted about traveling for many reasons now I mean my children 
you know, are very cross with me if I get on a plane for an unnecessarily short time. You know, they think you've got to have a real reason to get on a plane. It's fascinating. Which is, you know, yeah, that generation... It's, it's good, it's good, but it's not what... You know, I certainly did. No, I mean, we were used mm. to hopping on and off all the time. Yeah, up until very, very recently. Actually, I still am doing, but up until very, very recently, it didn't feel like a um A major a crime. Mm. But yes, nowadays, yes. you do feel, well, you can offset it. You know, yeah, sort of do other things the, in your life. Add the extra, you know, money that they ask for to offset your carbon footprint and, you know, plant some trees and... It's interesting what you said about living there, and I'm, I feel like I'm in this dilemma at the moment because I could go back to Spain. I've got two young children, and I know that they have a great life there. Are you Not Spanish? That, no, I'm half Indian, Fijian, and half English. Ah, so right. no Spanish blood whatsoever, which confuses people because I can speak Spanish and I grew up in Spain, and I look, yeah. I know I do look quite yeah. Spanish. But yeah, the, the, that dilemma, and I think you've, you've expressed it very well there, is that you'd probably get too tied down, possibly even a little bit bored with the, the more laid-back life in the sunshine. Yes, although I think sunshine is incredibly good for us. I mean, it came up about five minutes earlier today here in London. I mean, literally, I was walking down the street and I literally just stopped to feel it on my face yeah and it made me feel really I think I must be a very superficial person (laughs) because it made me feel extraordinarily happy yes it does make a difference it went behind a cloud and it started raining and And when it's there all the time you do take it for granted I know it doesn't seem it because we're here and you know walking here today we're in I should say that there's roadworks um, outside so that's the noise you can hear but we're in the London Library which is a beautiful building in St James Square St James Square isn't it a a really beautiful old building and I had to walk through some gorgeous London streets to get here some very well to do London streets and it passed Fortnum and Mason's past the Ritz um, through (laughs) Green Park where the Buckingham Palace is just down the road and um, that gave me a little bit of a buzz and that buzz of being somewhere like London, where something mm. is exciting <clears throat> and happening, and decisions are made here, laws are made here, fashion is created here, music and books. Obviously, these things happen in other corners of the world, but London is very it's special. It's very concentrated. It's very yeah. concentrated. Yeah. And that excites me, and that, that would be quite difficult to give up for that laid-back life in the sunshine. Although the, I feel the laid-back life in the sunshine is, is drawing, you know, <laughs> drawing yes. me in. But again, if one can have both yeah you know, we can still enjoy the best of both worlds and people that's exactly why everyone goes on holiday so before i ask you my last question do you travel wider obviously we've talked about spain and greece um yes um at the moment when we travel we tend to go south america woods oh, because dear. our daughter is living there at the moment and so that's a wonderful reason where is to, she she's in colombia um, so we've visited and she absolutely adores it and she's very happy there, she's working and, uh, you know, it's just the most beautiful country. It's a lot safer than it used to be as well. Very much so, yes. I mean, again, politics tends to create problems in different, whatever this sort of, the goblin of politics is, you know, at the moment the problems are in Venezuela. Um, but Colombia is, is really relatively safe and the sun shines a lot. Where else? I mean, we tend, if we do go on a long-haul trip, we, it's generally at Christmas. I mean, that always seems to be the time when the weather is at its worst Definitely. here and 
in the summer you can go somewhere a bit closer to hand. Um, Presumably we yeah. can still travel by then. <laughs> yeah. We're still allowed. Yeah, let's hope. We'll see. So I'm going to ask you my last question, because my last question is always about music, because I believe mm. that music and travel go hand in hand for a lot of people. And if you had to pick one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, what would that song be and why? Wow, it's a lovely question. Thank you. This is going to sound incredibly sort of solipsistic. Um, that's, that's a great word. Yeah, I'm going to use that in conversation. It sounds like it's to do with sunshine, doesn't it? Soul, but it's about the self. And when we were turning the island into a Greek television series, about 10 years ago, it was turned into a 26-episode sort of marathon and rather wonderful TV drama. I used to, while we were on set, I used to kind of write down sort of scribblings, but they were kind of poems, to try and convey to the guy who was doing the music the emotions of the characters that he had to kind of somehow encapsulate with notes. And he turned one of these poems that I wrote into the theme tune of the series and it was sung by the most wonderful and best-known Greek uh, pop stars called Eleonora Zuganelli. And the song is called Inei Agapi, which means it is love. And the album that she put it on won a big EMI award. So on my wall in our house in, in Crete, I have a, a Sony gold award for this song and it's actually a very beautiful the music I mean he kind of made the words fit this amazing music he's called Minos Matsas and I had the opportunity to sing it with her on one occasion on the stage I was allowed to sing the chorus of my own song can you sing? Um, yes I actually can oh, yeah, I won't yeah, sing yeah. it with you now <laughs> no, no, the song is called Inea Rapi and it's basically about how love is the cure for everything. Oh, that's amazing. I'm going to have to look up that song. So, yeah, no, it's, he, the song is absolutely beautiful and uh, always makes me cry when I hear it. Thank you so much, Victoria, for being on the Big Travel Podcast. Now, this was actually the last episode recorded before lockdown. So from now on, I'm going to be recording remotely. And I'm currently in talks with some amazing people who I do hope to be able to bring to you shortly. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.